Uh, good morning, St. Peter's. My name is Phil Pearson, and as uh, Chandler said, um, I am the executive ministry director. Before it was just ministry director, but I've got a promotion this week, apparently. So, uh, no, just the ministry director here, uh, but it's good to be here. Before I start, I thought I would tell a bit of a story that I was not planning on telling, but I, would, I didn't have many jokes in my sermon, so I thought I'd start off with something more lighthearted. Um, I, so I just got back into church ministry the past couple months, uh, but in my early 20s, I was a campus pastor back in Waterloo, Ontario. And at one point, um, oh, while I do this, I'll have Heidi and Stuber pass out baskets. There's going to be paper and pen. Uh, take a piece of paper and a pen. It's going to come back later, I, I promise. Um, but so I, I was a campus pastor back in Waterloo, and I had it was in my fourth year of university that I started pastoring. Uh, through a strange series of events. And at one point in this year, um, a, one of the, a couple in church were like, hey, we really want to get baptized. And I was like, oh, amazing. Like, we were Pentecostal non-denominational, so there wasn't high rules around baptism. And I was like, this is great. I'm going to, to baptize someone at church. But there was an immediate problem in that we were on the fourth floor of the university campus in a nightclub. And we were in a fancy church that had some sort of baptismal tank or font. So I was like, oh, well, that'll be easy. I'll just go to Walmart and buy a kiddie pool. And so I, I bought the kiddie pool, and I brought it to the fourth floor of the nightclub. And the pump in the pool was broken, so I had to blow up this large kiddie pool uh, before my, my sermon. So I pumped up the kiddie pool. And then the second challenge was we had no hose, so we just filled up the kiddie pool with beer pitchers of water, not with beer, with water, don't worry. So we were filling it up, and then it was awkward because the person had to sit in the kiddie pool to start. It's not like standing and going down. There was a lot of logistics errors that I, in my young age, had not thought of. I needed a ministry coordinator like Heidi to ask all those questions for me. But so I, I'm going to baptize. I baptized the first person. It was great. And then the second person, Tim, I lowered down into the water, and I have this hilarious, intrusive thought, where I look down and I think, I didn't fill the pool enough, because Tim is a bit of a bigger guy, and his stomach was like, he was wearing like a beige shirt, so his stomach was fully shown to like not be submerged, and I had this just hilarious thought that pastors and Bible college students think, it's, oh, do I have to do full immersion? This isn't full immersion. So while I drop him in the water, I look down and see this, and I just begin splashing him with water. And then I was like, oh, i got to pull him up. And I just, I had to include that because that, that was my story on baptism. Um, and I haven't baptized anyone since. So <laughs> don't worry. I don't have to do that for some time. But anyways, uh, it's great to be here, and I'm, I'm very excited to share with us today. Um, if you've been journeying alongside with us over the past several weeks, We've been doing a series called The Encounters of Goodness, and this has taken us to the side of the road in a vision, a dream of stairs descending from heaven. It's taken us to um, pillars of fire leading through the wilderness. It's taken us to a graveyard where a garden is blossoming, and it's taken us to the old weathered tent outside of town. And each one of these stories has focused on God's goodness, his love, his grace, his inclusion, acceptance, his mercy, and tenderness. And for me, this series has been such a gift because I feel like each week it is giving me more and more lenses to look at my life, to see God showing up in surprising ways, to see his leading presence in my life, to seeing gardens coming forth where there were graveyards, and to a reminder to go back to those places where I had encountered him before, 
and I hope they've been a gift for you as well. Today, we're going to examine another encounter, and this is a rather unique encounter. All of the encounters have been unique, but this is extra special, you could say, um, because this encounter is between God and God. This is between Jesus and God and the Spirit, and we get to witness it. It's an encounter that we see within the Trinity, and it takes place down by the River Jordan. Um, let me read the text uh, one more time, or part of the text that we're in, and I'm going to use the ESV translation instead of the NIV, and I'll highlight why after, though the NIV is our kind of chosen translation. Um, I'll dive back in, Matthew 3, verse 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him by saying, would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened up. And he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. There are a number of really interesting things going on in this passage that I think we often just miss having been in church for some time and been acculturated to the concept of baptism. Not only in church, but in, in culture, baptism is because of the church's influence for several hundred years. Baptism is a common motif, a common literary device that we see. It, and it, it shows up in movies like Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, the classic. We see it in movies like Moonlight or TV shows like The Sopranos and Lost. Um, it's in Broadway plays like The Book of Mormon. And I mean, even a few years ago, I was playing the video game Bioshock, and it shows up in a video game. And I was shocked to kind of see its prevalence in, in culture. And we kind of know baptism well, right? Um, though it's practiced in different denominations in different ways, whether adult or infant, and, and here at St. Pete's we do both, um, we become acculturated to it, and so we don't notice something big going on here. And if you've been baptized yourself or you've seen someone baptized, you've probably heard the words um, that in baptism, the person is being baptized into Christ, into his death, and resurrection, that the waters are a symbol of Jesus dying and coming out of them is coming alive to new life, dying to the old self and coming alive to a new self. And that concept of baptism should actually force a question on this text. Why is John baptizing? Because he goes and baptized Jesus long before the death and resurrection. And so it should force a bit of a, a clarifying question. What is John doing when he baptizes people before the death and resurrection? Well, the really interesting thing is that in the Gospels, baptism, or in the Gospels, when baptism comes, it's the first time in all the Bible that it fully comes in this form. Before this, baptism is never talked about. There is a Jewish ritual of, of washing, but it's not baptism. And as far as we understand it, baptism came in the intertestamental period, which is between Old Testament and New Testament, and we see it pop up in groups like the Essenes, who were a religious separatist group um, that were actually responsible for the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they were pra uh, practicing baptism. And John takes baptism, and he shapes it in a new way. He creates it to be a prophetic act, and he's inviting the Israelites to pass through the waters 
in preparing for the Messiah, repenting of sins. And the location here is so important to what's going on because it's the Jordan River. And it's pointing back to some of the narrative threads that are at work in the act of baptism. Because the Jordan River, a thousand years prior, was where the Israelites entered into the promised land from the wilderness on dry ground. They passed through the waters, the waters on dry ground, to enter into the land that promised them. And this imagery in baptism, it ties to Noah and the ark um, passing through the waters of destruction. It It connects to Moses and the crossing of the Red Sea, also passing on dry waters or dry land. It connects to Jonah being swallowed by the fish for three days and then coming out. And John is taking this imagery, this baptism, this act, but pointing towards something new. And he's inviting the people of Israel to come and recommit themselves to repent of the ways that they've gone away from God and to return to him. And I need to say, it's not just individually that he's inviting them. It is communally as a people saying, we need to turn and recommit to God to prepare our hearts ultimately for Jesus. And so in the work of baptism, we have each of these narrative threads kind of coming to fruition when John is baptizing. And so he's not baptizing in death and resurrection. He's baptizing through the waters as fulfilling those stories of Israel in the past. And that brings us to a second question, of course, of why would Jesus get baptized? Because if if baptism is about repentance and realignment, as far as we understand Jesus, he was without sin. That's what the scriptures point to. So why would Jesus come to be baptized? And I mean, we see this at work in the text because John says, I should be baptized by you. I'm the one preparing the way for you, and yet you're coming to me to be baptized. And Jesus' line, I always just love the simpleness of Jesus in text. And he just says, it's proper for us to fulfill all righteousness. And he doesn't clarify more than that. But to him, it's this act of fulfillment. To him, to Jesus, being baptized is a fulfillment of all that has come before him. It is a fulfillment of him following in the obedience of God. And it's a fulfillment that will ultimately lead to the cross. And even there's a subtle play there when John says, I should be baptized by you. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to be baptized by you instead. It's also saying, I'm going to be baptized so that this will lead to the cross. So that in your baptism, I'm replacing you. It's an act of obedience and fulfillment, and so John consents to it. And Jesus is baptized, and he passes through the waters. And as he comes up, God speaks. And I went with the ESV for one specific reason. It says, this is my beloved son. With him, I am well pleased. Now, I, I like ESV trans, or NIV translation, and I'm getting into very nerdy co- topics here, but I feel as though the NIV fails in a little bit of the gusto here where ESV, it takes the Greek word agapatos, which is an adjective, and it keeps it an adjective, where the NIV translates it into a a verb of love. But it's an adjective instead of a verb. Jesus' title, Jesus' place, Jesus' identity is beloved. He is the one on whom all God's love is. God does not simply love him. And maybe that's just parsing semantics, but I love semantics. But God says to Jesus, this is my beloved. I mean, have you ever called anything 
Beloved, has anything taken that place for you as that of the highest love, that which all your love and affection is filled up? And this is such an interesting moment that it comes because up until now in the gospel narratives, Jesus has been a passive figure. Jesus was born to Mary. Jesus was worshipped and adored by shepherds. Jesus was given gifts by magi. Jesus was carted off to Egypt and then brought back. Only in the story of Luke is there any kind of mention of what Jesus was like as a kid, as an active figure. But in Matthew, this is the first time that Jesus speaks. He hasn't done anything. And it's so important that it's right now that God chooses to reveal himself or chooses to reveal Jesus as his beloved. There are many parents in the room here, and you would know better than I, but uh, the question is, when are you most proud of your kid or your child? Is it, out of a baby, it's probably that early elements of like, ooh, they cooed at me, they smiled. I had one parent say, oh, I'm most proud of my child when they smile and they're pooping because they have such joy in their face. And as infants, it's those little things, right? You're probably most proud when they're sleeping. Wow, you finally did it. You, you, you went quiet. <laughs> As they get older, though, it's a little bit more nuanced. It's they began walking or standing or running. And then it's when they got a goal, when they kicked the ball in the net, when they treated someone else with kindness, when they did well on a test. But pride is usually reactive. The welling up of pride is based on a positive emotion, even if it's only that they slept. But this word from heaven comes before Jesus has done anything. It is, I love you, you are my beloved, not because you have done anything, but simply because you are my son. Has, has ever, have you ever said, I love you to anyone, and they responded, why do you love me? Not in like a weird way or a mean way, that's happened, but in like a nice way, like you said, oh, I love you. It's like, oh, why do you love me? If you have, you've probably realized you walked into a trap, <laughs> Right? Because what's the right answer? Like someone says, why do you love me? And you're like, uh, I, I don't know. Now I'm kind of questioning it myself because if you, don't, if you say anything else other than I love you because I love you because you're my beloved, your love is conditional. If you say I love you because you're kind and patient, well, sooner or later that person is not going to be patient with you and your love will falter. If you say I love you because you're beautiful, well, Sooner or later, you know, the beauty will fade. And we will always say, well, you're beautiful, but it's not the same. And if you say, I love you because you care and provide for me, well, what about when the inverse happens, when you have to care and provide extra for them? All you can say in that moment is, I love you because I choose to love you. Because love, true unconditional love, is not dependent on the receiver, but on the giver. And here, right at the, store, at the beginning of the story of Jesus' life, God pronounces love and joy and gladness over Jesus because he chooses to love him, simply because Jesus is his beloved. To me, these words for Jesus are akin to Peter Parker's origin story. In the very beginning of Spider-Man, what does he say? With great power must come great responsibility. And that sets Peter Parker, Spider-Man, off in the direction of the rest of his life. They will define all actions he does. And it's the same here for Jesus. 
because these words will carry him through all he does. Before all else, love is spoken. Before all else, joy is expressed. And before all else, Jesus is God's beloved. And this takes us back to the act of baptism. Because for 2,000 years now, the Christian church has practiced baptism as the primary sign of entrance into the community of faith. If you are a Christian, whether born or later in life, you get baptized. Whether as a child or as an adult, I grew up in a Baptist church which um, did baptism later in life, but when I was eight years old, I like, started reading through the Bible and came across like, oh, this person became a Christian and they went and got baptized. And so I went to my parents and was like, hey, I need to get baptized. And they're like, no, 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 we're Baptists, you're too young. And I was like, no, you're wrong. So I went to the pastor and like brought a bunch of texts to him. And I was like, this is why I should get baptized. And they're like, okay, well, we'll baptize them. But it's, and it's not a strange or mystical experience. It's a sign and a symbol of our life in Christ. It's deeply powerful, yet beautifully simple. I love what Paul says when he writes to the church in Galatia. He's seeking to have them understand their place in God and understand their identity, and he writes this. So, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ. This means something profound and beautiful. When God looks at you, he sees his son. And over you, he speaks the words, you are my beloved, and with you I am well pleased, because he speaks them over Jesus. When you are baptized and you enter into the community of faith, when you choose to follow Jesus, those words are said over you. And to Paul, this putting on of Christ overrides every other sense of identity we have. First, it overrides our sense of nationality, right? We can't simply be identified as Jew or Greek, Canadian or British, Nigerian or Brazilian, because first, we are beloved. And to Paul, it overrides any sense of status or power, we no longer identify ourselves as slave or free, rich or poor, boss or employer, lawyer or cashier, employed or unemployed. We are beloved. And it overrides male or female, son or daughter. No, beloved. When we choose to follow the way of Jesus, when we choose to become his apprentice, when we invite him into our hearts, our lives, our hands and feet, God looks down at you and says, this is my beloved. And with you, I am well pleased. Like creation, God looks over Jesus and says, it's good. It's very good. All my love is on you. And so Jesus' fulfillment of righteousness here in the act of baptism becomes our story, our origin story. It becomes the place where we understand our true identity. In our baptism, the words that God spoke over Jesus are spoken over us. You are my beloved. And that would be such a beautiful and easy place to end. And often I want to end in that kind of cookie-cutter Christian. You're my beloved, and we can go from there. But right after Jesus' baptism, something very interesting happens. Heaven opens up. 
God shows himself. The spirit descends on him. The words are spoken. And then Jesus goes off into the wilderness for 40 days and nights of fasting. This symbol of the Israelite people in the wilderness for 40 years. And then it ends with a time of temptation. It says this, The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written that man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple, and he said, If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, Throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, and, they will not, and you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus' baptism and word from God is followed by temptation and a word from Satan. These temptations are, of course, a callback to Adam and Eve in the garden, to the people of Israel in the wilderness, and the temptations are around identity to understand and truly inhabit one's identity because Satan says, if you really are the Son of God. He doesn't tempt Jesus through lies, but through the presentation of truth and doubt. And it's the same thing done in the garden, right? To Eve, he says, did God really say, do not eat of it? You can hear Satan whispering in Jesus' ear, if you were the Son of God, you wouldn't be in this place. You wouldn't be challenged like this. Just use your power. Do a miracle. Do the trick. And it's an interesting trick because at first it doesn't even seem bad, right? Just turn stone to bread. And in fact, Jesus will later feed multitude by making bread. But the subtle play here is that it's a showing of a lack of reliance on God the Father. By doing that, he would be acting in his own power instead of humility to God. But Satan is saying, just check. Just make sure that you're the son of God. These temptations are a direct challenge to the words just spoken over him. They are trying to twist the words of love and joy. They're seeking cracks in the foundation. They're seeking cracks of doubt in the foundation of trust. And I mean, maybe Jesus thought to himself, did God really say that to me? Am I really the one he loves? I mean, it's been 40 days and I don't see him. But the tempter wants to twist the words and their meaning. He does it twice, if you are the son of God. And all temptation is really the same for us. Because if we have embodied those words into our hearts and minds and hands, it becomes the question for us, do we really believe it? All acts of sin are ultimately idolatry, and what I mean by that is we put other things in place of God. We allow other words to have power over us instead of God's words. Instead of allowing God's words to define us, we become fueled by the fears and the desires that come when other people speak over us. When I was younger, um, I had a person in my life that often jokingly and sometimes seriously called me a lazy good-for-nothing. Again and again it was said. And then suddenly I was 27 years old and doing counseling, and they asked the question, why do you work so hard? And I was like, oh, I don't work that hard. And they're like, no, no, you're, you're obsessed with work. You never want to be called lazy. 
and I had this breakthrough, oh, that word has defined me for 27 years. I allow it to be the thing that drives me. Or I used to be so worried about being poor, and so I would just pinch every penny. I was filled with anxiety and worry about being viewed as poor. And so all, like in our first year of marriage, my wife and I would fight about any sort of spending. You bought a cheeseburger? Why didn't you just buy a hamburger? It was 40 cents. But I allowed those words of poverty, of worry to overwhelm me. Or maybe it's beauty, right? Why do we spend hours at the gym trying to craft a perfect body? Well, maybe it's I'm worried that people don't think I'm beautiful enough. Or people have said I'm beautiful and I need to keep that image up. Or love. Maybe people have said they love you, but you're worried about losing that love. So you do anything you can to keep their attention and affection. But it's other people's words that's what's driving us. Sin comes when the tempter says, but what about the other words that people said over you? Are you really the son of God or are you lazy? Are you really the son of God or are you just beautiful? But Jesus overcomes temptation by reliance on the word of God. I'm going to flip back and I'm going to lose my point for a moment. But he says, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And this is coming from Jesus who just heard the words of God over him. And he's quoting scripture, of course, the words filled with God's words. Jesus relies on God's words, on scripture, to overcome this temptation, to root himself in his identity. And through these temptations, he fulfills all righteousness because he does what we can't. He passes the test. He overcomes the temptation. And through doing that, he redeems the garden. He redeems the wilderness. And he redeems all the times that you and I fail. Because he does what you and I could not. But it all starts with God speaking his goodness and love over him. His response is only based on God's love over him first. You are my beloved. And though we can, to, we can attempt to emulate Jesus, to know, we know ultimately that we will fall. We will put other gods before God. We will doubt the words said over us. But Jesus has fulfilled that for us. And so in baptism, we are reminded, you are my son, my daughter, my beloved. And with you, I am well pleased because God sees Jesus when he looks at you. I need to hear these words often. This sermon has been such a wrestle to work through because it's brought up all those words that I use to define myself. So I have a small embodying practice. It's just going to be brief. At the beginning, you were given a piece of paper and a pen. And I simply want you to write whatever those words are. And they can be positive or negative, good or bad. Just write them down. And then when we come to take communion at the basket in front, there is a different set of words. You are my beloved. I want you to take those if you're willing. Carry them with you. Put them in your phone. I have them right behind my computer at work. And then after you take communion, you're reminded that Jesus died for you, that he loves you. If you would like, throw out the old words. Because those words have no weight and power over you. 
because the true words are spoken over you. You are my beloved, and with you I am well pleased. I want to read Galatians one more time because it's been hitting me all week. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I'm going to pray.